Every time we sing, uh, we rest on thee, my mind goes to the story um, of the, the missionaries who sang that. Many of you read the book Through Gates of Splendor with us a few years ago. It gets the title from that song, from We Rest on Thee. It gives the story of uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and that mission team that was trying to get the gospel to the Alka Indians, this unreached people group. Many of you know this story. And uh, they had already made contact. They had flown the plane overhead and circled and dropped care packages to try to make contact with this, what had been before, a very violent tribe. And then they finally decided that the day had come that they were going to try to make personal contact. They were going to fly into where this tribe was. So they found a little sandbar on the river that they could land their plane on. And so they flew in, this group of men flew in and landed on the sandbar. It's planning to spend the night on the sandbar and then try to make contact with the Alkas the next day. And um, they sang that, that night or right before they left this hymn, We Rest on Thee, that this is what was on their mind as they went out there. And of course, if you know the story, you know that they did make contact with the tribe, but the ones who came out were violent and the whole mission team, Nate Sane and Jim Elliott, they ended up being, being killed by the men from the Alka tribe that came out to see them. But through all of that, the tribe still ended up being reached. Uh, Jim Elliott's wife um, continued doing mission work there, and many from the Alka tribe came to trust in Jesus. But every time I, we sing that hymn, I think of those men sitting on that sandbar the night before they would give their lives in service to the gospel, singing those same words. We rest on thee. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, right? We feel that as we go out with the gospel, but we have the trust that God works through our weak, simple proclamation of the gospel to do things we could never dream of. Um, and that's what Paul reminds us of in Romans. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and take it and open up with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. We started a study last week in um, what I think you could argue is the greatest letter ever written. Uh, one of the letters from the Apostle Paul to the believers in the city of Rome. And I mentioned last week how God has, over the years, used the book of Romans in such uh, a powerful way, such an unusual way. So many of the great heroes of the faith were actually brought to faith in Jesus through Romans. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to study a, a book of the Bible that would help you plumb the depths of the Christian faith. I mean, if you wanted one book that you were going to give your attention to, to try to dive down into what it means to be a Christian and the gospel that we hold to as Christians, I don't think you could study a better book than Romans is. Um, William Tyndale, who is looked at as the, the father of the English translation of the Bible, Tyndale literally gave his life translating the Bible into English and then distributing the Bible in English in England at a time when that wasn't allowed. He wanted the Bible to be in the hands of people so they could read it. It wasn't allowed to be distributed to people. And yet, in spite of that, Tyndale did this great work of translating the Bible and distributing the Bible and ended up giving his life. He was strangled and then burned at the stake because of it. And I want to read for you um, the prologue that Tyndale wrote to his translation of Romans. Listen to what Tyndale says about Romans. He writes, For as much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, and also is a light and a way unto the, unto the whole of Scripture, I think it meet that every Christian man not only know it by rote and without the book, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually, as with the daily bread of the soul. 
No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. Tyndall saying that there is great treasure in the book of Romans, but it's there for those who are willing to search. It's there for those who are willing to chew. It's there for those who are willing to study. And that's what we're wanting to do in these coming months, is we're wanting to chew on the book of Romans to get the treasure out of it. And we started last week looking at the introduction, and we didn't get through all of that. So let's just read the first seven verses of Romans together again. Again, we're in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we started working through this last week under three headings. Number one, we saw the author. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written at a turning point in Paul's ministry. Paul has spent the first part of his life as a Christian focusing on the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And the gospel has been spread, and churches have been planted. And so now Paul's ready to turn his attention to the western part of the Roman world. But to do that, Paul knows that he's going to need help. He needs partners. And so his hope is that this church in Rome, these believers in Rome, might partner with him in this gospel ministry. The challenge is he had never been to Rome. And he had never met most of these people. And so he writes the book of Romans, and he begins it by helping them understand who he is, and by helping them understand what his message is. Now as far as who he is... There are a couple things that Paul wants them to know in verse 1. First, and primarily, Paul wants them to know he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And you remember from last week, that, that's just the word for slave. Paul viewed that as the most important thing about him. And for our men who were in our Thursday morning Bible study, this is something Paul says regularly. Because Paul begins the book of Philippians in the same way. The way he introduces himself to the church at Philippi is he also says he is a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul's communicating there is he viewed himself as owned by another. Paul was owned by the Lord Jesus. His life was not his own. And there's, there's only one thought that matters to a slave. There's one pressing issue for a slave. What is it? The one question is, what would please my master? That's all that matters. And that's how Paul defined his life. Now, and I would just add, 
It would clear up a lot of things in our decision making if we lived with that same thought at the forefront of our minds. Right? Like, how should I handle this situation? How do I need to respond to this conversation? It brings a lot of clarity if I recognize that as a believer, my life is not my own. All that matters now is, how can I handle this in a way that would please my master? That's the job of a bondservant. But Paul also adds in verse 1, he was called to be an apostle. So, so he was in a unique role in the early church. He received and communicated direct revelation from God so that Paul's instruction and Paul's teaching to the church had the full authority of King Jesus behind it. He had been separated out by God for this gospel ministry. And that leads us to the second point that we barely started on last week, the message. So at the end of that verse, Paul mentions the gospel of God at the end of verse 1. Well, it's like Paul can't mention the gospel without pausing to elaborate on it a little bit. So he feels the need to expand on what this gospel is. And remember, we've already said it a few times in this service. The word gospel means good news. It is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. Through Jesus, our sin debt has been paid. Through Jesus, the grave has been conquered. Through Jesus, salvation has been secured. And we stopped last week with verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. Paul says, of the gospel, which he, that's God, which God promised before through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel that Paul had committed his life to wasn't new. The gospel that Paul was preaching was pictured and prophesied of throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Now here's why that's so important. You'll regularly run into people who have this artificial division in their mind between the Old and the New. And they'll have the idea that the old is all law and the new is all grace. In the old, it's a God of wrath, and in the new, it's a God of love. But Paul is making the point, it is one story, and it is one God. So when we come to the New Testament, we're not starting from scratch. As the gospel is unfurled in the New Testament, it's not brand new. The gospel that is fully explained in the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. The way Augustine said it is he said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new Revealed. That's why as we go through Romans, you'll notice Paul is going to quote from the Old Testament over 50 times in Romans. And he's doing that to make the point there's continuity between the old and the new. It's one God and one story. But who is this story about? Look at verse 3. Here's who it's about. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, what is the focus of the gospel? Or I should say, who is the focus of the gospel? The main point of the gospel is not to leave us impressed with ourselves. It's not to leave us impressed 
with the church or impressed with the preacher. The main point of the gospel is to leave us impressed with Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and why it matters. That's the gospel. Who he is, what he's done, and why it matters. And just in that opening phrase of verse 3, Paul gives us heavy, crucial truth about who Jesus is. So who is he? Well, the first thing Paul tells us in verse 3 is this is concerning God's Son. So who is Jesus? He is the eternal Son of God. And just in that phrase, he's making a point about the deity of Jesus. He's making a point about the unique relationship that exists between Jesus and God the Father. Jesus has eternally existed as the Son of God, which means Jesus and the Father are one in essence. Like Father, like Son, we say sometimes. Jesus and the Father are one in nature. There's a great picture of this in John chapter 5. In John 5, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders and he starts using this same language where he starts speaking of himself as the Son and God as his Father. And you remember what the religious leaders start doing? They start looking for a way to kill him. Why do they start looking to kill him? Because they say he is making himself equal to God. They recognized that by claiming that he is the unique son of God, Jesus was claiming deity. And the Bible makes that point clearly. Think of, of John in John 1 saying of Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and then what's the last part of that? And the word was God. Or listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 verse 13, Paul writes, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, did you notice what he called Jesus? Jesus is our great Savior, and who else is Jesus? He is our great God. So Paul says that the gospel is concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's not only God's divine son, he is the Christ. That means he's the Messiah. He's the king the Old Testament promised us was coming. And Paul adds, he is our Lord. Now think about how that would have struck these Christians living in Rome. Because who else lived in Rome? The Roman emperor lived in Rome. The Caesar lived in Rome. And every Roman citizen was expected to say, Caesar is Lord. But you see what Paul's reminding these Christians of? He's reminding us that we have a Lord that stands above Caesar. We have a Lord that stands above every president and every potentate and every congressman and every king. Our ultimate Lord is Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. There, there was, some of you will remember this, but there was a, a big controversy in the American church back in the late 1980s that became known as the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Are y'all familiar with that? 
those of you who have benefited from the ministry of John MacArthur, this is when he really burst onto the scene in American church life because he wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus that really drew a line in the sand on this lordship salvation. If, if, you, if you have benefited from his books, you should read that book. It's kind of the seminal work by John MacArthur. But what was going on is there were lots of people who were teaching that you could be a Christian, you could have Jesus as your Savior, and not have Jesus as your Lord. So you could, you could sort of take Christianity in phases. So if you don't want to go to hell, you can pray this prayer, get that taken care of, have Jesus as your Savior, but you don't have to have Him as Lord yet. Meaning, you're free to keep living however you want to live. And if you keep living that way, well that just means you're a carnal Christian. And maybe you'll live your whole life as a carnal Christian, but you'll still be a Christian, they would say. So you can embrace Him as Savior, never have Him as Lord, and still be a Christian. Which is a horrible distortion of the Gospel. Because you can't take Jesus in parts. That's not how it works. In fact, Paul in Romans 10, when he describes, when he defines the means of salvation, what does he say? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God's raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so you can't have salvation from Jesus while at the same time you refuse Him as Lord. You can't, you can't have Him as Savior and reject Him as Lord. Salvation means we are coming to God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, Jesus Christ our Lord. What else are we told? We'll keep going in that verse. Paul says of Jesus, He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Get that. He was born according to the flesh. That means the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on all the weaknesses and all the limitations of human flesh. And the order there is important. It's not that God found a man that he chose to make his son is that God chose to send his eternal son to us as a man. So that Jesus entered in, to, to go back to John 1 again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Our, our eternal God chose to pitch his tent with us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, who experienced all the weaknesses bodily. He got hungry and he got thirsty and he got tired and he felt pain and he wept and he was betrayed. And just like you, he was born in, into a particular family line. What family line was he born into? Well, he was born of the seed of David. Of course, that was the kingly line. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that there would come one of his descendants who would sit on the throne forever. And Paul is saying, this Jesus is that king in the line of David. Look at verse 4. Paul continues, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness. The Spirit of Holiness is the Holy Spirit. According to the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. Now, do you get the symmetry between 3 and 4? A lot of commentators think that verses 3 and 4 
were actually some sort of creed or some sort of hymn that they used in the early church. And Paul is grabbing that creed because there's a balance to it. Verse 3 tells us who Jesus was according to the flesh. But then verse 4 tells us who he was according to the spirit. So who was he? Well, Paul says he is declared to be the son with power. By his resurrection from the dead. That declared is the idea. It's the, it's the Greek word we get our word horizon from. The horizon is the, the line of demarcation, right? Between the earth and the sky. And the point being made is that Jesus has been marked out as the unique, divine, powerful son of God. How was he marked out in that way? By his resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection was the father announcing to the world for everyone to see that Jesus is the powerful Son of God. So He came in weakness and in lowliness according to the flesh, but His exaltation and His power and His glory have been put on display for everyone to see in His resurrection from the dead. So the Father has given irrefutable proof to us of who Jesus is through the resurrection. So if, if, if you're the kind of person who says, well, I just need God to do something else. I need God, I need God to show me a sign. I need God to give me this or that. And then I'll believe. The point Paul is making is God has already made the ultimate, final, full revelation of who Jesus is in the resurrection from the dead. If that's not enough for you, nothing will be enough for you. And I would just add, most of the time when people raise intellectual arguments about believing in Jesus, listen to me, most of the time when people raise intellectual arguments about believing in Jesus, it's a smokescreen. I just had this conversation with a guy at the gym here a week ago. Most of the time, the real reason why people don't believe is not intellectual, it's moral. Because the fact of the matter is, if I believe this, that means Jesus has authority over my life. And if I believe this, that means there is moral accountability. But I don't want there to be moral accountability. I like my uh, moral autonomy. I like to be able to live however I want to live and not worry about accountability. So I'm not dare going to believe in this because that would upset my whole way of living. Okay, so it's usually not intellectual. It is usually moral. And Paul is making the point that Jesus has made the ultimate proof and defense of who Jesus is by raising him from the dead. What else are we told? Paul continues verse 5. And before I read verse 5, let me make this one more point about verse 3 and 4. Notice now, Paul's describing the gospel and when Paul wants to drill down to the heart of the faith, to the heart of what we believe as Christians, do you see what Paul finally comes down to? He comes down to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart of it. And the reason I emphasize that is, is you'll run into lots of people who come under the umbrella of Christianity who mainly only want to talk about the other things that Jesus did. You'll find so-called liberal Christians coming out the ears who, who only want to talk about the hungry people that Jesus fed and the sick people that Jesus healed. And the reason for that is they want to present Christianity as if it is mainly 
a social movement. So following Jesus is just about soup kitchens and medical clinics and all of that's good and Christians do that and we should love people like Jesus did. But listen, the main way that Jesus loved people was by dying and rising from the dead. That's the main way. So if you want to emphasize Jesus' love by focusing on all the social stuff, but you never find yourself drilling down into his death and resurrection, you're focusing on something different than what Paul focused on. The main way he loved people was by dying and rising, because that's our main problem. My sin is so offensive to God that the only way it could be dealt with was by the perfect Son of God dying the most horrible death imaginable for me. Because that's what my sin deserves. It deserves death. And, and not just physical death. My sin deserves eternal death. My soul should be separated from God forever and my body should be in the grave forever. But Jesus died to take that death for me. He went to the cross to take the punishment I deserve. And He rose from the dead to conquer the grave. And it's, it's so tempting... It is so tempting to put the focus in the Christian faith on all the other stuff that Jesus did. And here's why. Because our world is willing to accept Jesus as long as it's just the social work kind of Jesus. As long as it's just the, the he gets us kind of Jesus. As long as it's just a Jesus who affirms everybody and wouldn't dare make demands and would never be judgmental, as long as it's that Jesus, the world will sign off on it. The problem is that Jesus doesn't exist. That Jesus is a human invention. He's a fairy tale. And that Jesus can't save anybody. The Jesus we present is the eternal Son who is Christ and Lord and who died in the place of sinners and bodily rose from the dead. Is that the Jesus you're trusting in? Well, verse 5 now. Paul continues. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. The first part of that, Paul's turning back to what Jesus had done for him. Paul had received, he says, grace and apostleship. Or that could be, he has received the grace of apostleship. Paul was not an apostle because he checked the boxes. He's not an apostle because he earned it. He was an apostle by sheer grace. It is the undeserved favor of God that made him an apostle. And what was Paul's ministry driven toward? As he's presenting the gospel, what is he hoping to see it produce? Well, here's what he's hoping to see it produce. Paul says in verse 5, For obedience to the faith. As we present the gospel, this is what it's calling for. This is what we're hoping to see it produce. Obedience to the faith. And there's two ways that could be translated. It could be translated just like this. That the gospel calls for obedience to the faith. Meaning, the gospel's not just, it's not just something for us to consider. The gospel comes with a command for us to obey. What's the command the gospel requires us to obey? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's the command. And so the gospel calls for obedience. And the obedience it calls for is faith. Put your trust in Jesus. 
That's one way it could be translated. Or some of your translations will word it this way. They'll word it, the obedience that comes from faith. In other words, the gospel calls us to put our faith in Jesus. And saving faith always results in a life of grateful obedience. So Paul could be talking about what saving faith produces. That the gospel calls for faith, and saving faith always bubbles over in obedience. Because saving faith is not just mental assent. It is my mind and my heart and my will trusting in Jesus from which obedience naturally springs. Now, of course, not perfect obedience. Saving faith can still struggle with and stumble in all kinds of sin. But where there is real saving faith, there will be a new inclination of the heart to obey Jesus. Okay, that's what this is pushing toward. And then Paul adds that we, we want to see this among all nations. Now, specifically, Paul's describing his ministry. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's working to see the gospel spread through the nations. But the general point here is that this gospel message that's being laid out in Romans is a message for the nations. In other words, it's not a tribal gospel. This is not just a gospel for Israel or a gospel for America. It's not a white gospel or a black gospel or a Hispanic gospel. This is the gospel for the nations. It doesn't matter where you are or what you look like. The only way you can be reconciled to God is through this gospel. There are no variations of it, in other words. Then here's the end goal of all of this. Notice how verse 5 ends. This is what all of this is driving toward. For His name. Whose name is that talking about? Jesus' name. Meaning, the ultimate, the end result of all of this is Jesus' name being honored. Jesus' name being magnified. It's about His fame, His renown, His glory, His praise. It's for His name. And I would just add that this is our highest motivation in our gospel ministry. It's this. Now it's true. It's true. We want to be faithful with the gospel because God commands us to be and we want to obey. That's a strong motivation. But that's not the highest motivation. It's true, we want to be faithful with the gospel because we love people and we don't want to see people spend eternity in hell under the judgment of God. That's a motivation. But that's not the highest motivation. I would argue this is the highest motivation. Our highest motivation in gospel ministry is we want Christ's name honored. Jesus deserves to be praised by every person on the face of the planet. And here's something important that goes along with that, with this being our highest motivation. That means, that means that every time the gospel is presented, it's a success even if there's no positive response. I'll say that again. Every time the gospel is presented, it's a success even if there's no positive response. Why? Well, because every time the gospel is presented, Jesus is glorified. Because the gospel is the story of Jesus' greatness and his humility and his sacrifice and his victory and his reign. And every time that story of Jesus is told, Jesus is magnified. 
Even if no one responds positive, positively to it, he's glorified in the presentation of the gospel. Now that's huge because that means if next week you share the gospel with one of your coworkers and they want nothing to do with it, that was not a failure. That was a success because Jesus was magnified in the presentation of the gospel. Just in presenting the gospel, you declare Jesus is king. Just in presenting the gospel, you made it clear that the only way this co-worker can be reconciled to God is through this message about Jesus. Just in presenting the gospel, you showed that Jesus is worth being rejected. He's, re he's worth maybe even being ridiculed for. So this is, this is ultimately what drives all gospel ministry. It's not for the fame of the church. It's not for the fame of the speaker or the evangelist. It is for Christ's name. That's the message. And here's the third part. Third, I want to see the recipients. Look with me, if you would, to verses 6 and 7. Paul continues, Among whom, this is among the nations, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has been sent to the nations, among whom are the people in Rome. That's why he's wanting to get to Rome. And he says two things that are true about these Christians in Rome. And these aren't just true about Christians in Rome. If you're a Christian, what Paul says here is true of you. Two things Paul says of these Christians. He says we are called of God and we are loved by God. Listen to me. If, Christian, if you want two solid truths to rest your heart in, I, I can't think of many that are much better than this. You are called and you are loved. You'll notice he uses the word called two times in those last two verses. He says in verse 6 that we are called of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 7, we are called to be saints. And you might remember Paul used this same word describing himself up in verse 1. Where he says he is called to be an apostle. And I made the point when we were in verse 1 that that is not an invitation. Paul's calling to be an apostle wasn't the Lord asking him if he would consider being an apostle. It was a divine summons. And that's what Paul is telling these Roman Christians about their salvation. How had they come to be in the faith? How had they become the saints of God? Paul's answer is because they were called. This is often described as the effectual call. That means it's a call that accomplishes something. It's effective. It's a call that creates what it calls for. The physical picture of this is Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus and saying, Lazarus, come forth. Now when he says that, is he inviting Lazarus to come out of the tomb? Is he giving options? Lazarus, would you please consider if you're going to come back to life or not? No, it's a call that brought Lazarus back to life. It's a call that created what it called for. Okay, that's what the effectual call is. It's a call that actually creates something. 
It's the call of God that raises spiritually dead people back to life. Now there's another way to talk about call in the Bible. There's also what's, what's termed the external call. That's, that's what we're given to do. We're called to go out with the gospel, present the gospel, and call people to come believe. We want to get that gospel, that message, into the ears of as many people as we can get it into. But we recognize that the ultimate problem isn't people's ears, it's people's hearts. So there are lots of people who hear that message with their ears and and don't want to have anything to do with it. Because what needs to happen isn't just to hear it with their ears. What needs to happen is a divine call that brings dead hearts back to life. That's the effectual call. The internal call. The call that only God can do. Let me show you what that looks like. This is 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. So according to Paul, how do people respond to the message of Christ crucified? Well, the Greeks respond by saying it's a stumbling block, meaning they're offended by it. This idea that the Messiah they've been waiting for was going to come and die the most ignominious death imaginable was a bridge too far for the Jews. That was a non-starter. And then how did the Greeks respond to it? They heard the gospel as utter foolishness. You mean to tell me a divine being is going to take on flesh and allow mere mortals to take his life? So to the Greek mind, that was utter Foolishness. It was ridiculous to consider Christ crucified. So you have Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, who both hear the gospel and they both reject the gospel. One see it as stumbling block, one see it as foolishness. Okay, so if that's, if that's the case, if Jews and Gentiles both reject it, how is anyone ever saved? Here's how, next verse. Verse 24. But... Get that word. He just described how how Jews and Greeks naturally receive the gospel. Verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Jews and Greeks naturally reject the gospel for different reasons. But now Paul's making the point that there are people in both of those groups who suddenly hear the gospel differently. There are Jews who hear it and rather than hearing it as a stumbling block, they suddenly find in the gospel the power of God. And there are Greeks who suddenly, rather than hearing the gospel as foolishness, they hear in the gospel the wisdom of God. So what changed? How did they go from hearing it as foolishness and offensive to suddenly embracing it? What's Paul's answer to what changed? It's in verse 24. But to those who are called. It is the call of God that wakes us up and opens our eyes and changes how we hear the gospel. It's like this. Imagine this afternoon you you eat lunch and you go home. And I don't know how it works around your house on Sunday afternoons, but... One of the adults in my house every Sunday afternoon takes a nap, and it's not me. 
Um, but imagine you go home today, and guys, let's say your wife lays down on the couch, and she is taking a nap. And so you're walking around, and you're trying to be quiet to let her sleep, and so you tiptoe over, the cou- over to the couch so, so you don't wake her up, and you sweetly, gently lean over as she's sleeping, and you say, wake up! Now what happens in that moment? Are you inviting your wife to wake up? When you say that, does your wife think in her mind, okay, am I going to wake up or am I not going to wake up? No, it's a call that wakes her up. It creates what it calls for. That's the way the effectual call of God works. This is God stepping up to hearts that are stone cold dead and going, wake up! And when God does that, eyes that were once blind are suddenly opened. Hearts that were once cold and unfeeling suddenly enlivened. Ears that were once clogged to the truth and beauty of the gospel open up. And you suddenly see yourself for who you are and Jesus for who he is. You you might have before, you might have thought of the cross as this wonderful, sweet symbol, but all of a sudden you see in the cross the wisdom and the power of God. It is the only way you can be reconciled to God and you reach out in faith and believe. Okay, that's, that's what Paul is saying to these Christians about their faith. Listen, Christians are people who have believed in Jesus, yes, and believe. Christians are people who trust in Jesus, yes. Christians are people who believe the gospel, yes. But what Paul's doing here is he's peeling the onion back a layer. Why is it you believed? Why is it you trusted? Why is it two weeks before you had no interest in the gospel, you had heard it a hundred times before? Suddenly you're sitting in a service and you hear it again and your heart opens up. What happened? This is what happened. The God who created you called out to you just like he did to Lazarus in that tomb and said, wake up. And when God called out, your spiritual eyes were opened and you believed. This is who you are as a Christian. You were called. You were called of Christ. That's probably the idea that you were called into Christ. So this is a call that brought you into fellowship with Jesus And Paul says in verse 7, this is a call that made you saint, made us saints. So it's a call that separated us out as belonging to God. It's a call that positioned us in Jesus so that we're now seen as holy. That's what this call did for us. But not only were we called, Paul also uses that phrase, they are, we are beloved of God. Yes, as Christians, we love Him But you remember how John says it in 1 John? We love him because he first loved us. Hang on to this, Christian. You you are not just tolerated by God. You're not just endured by God. You are loved by God. Called and loved. There's a great old hymn by Isaac Watts that... I think pulls these two things together. Isaac Watts, of course, is one of the great hymn writers of Christian history. He wrote, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and when I survey the wondrous cross. But he wrote a hymn called, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Now, 
they use the word awful as in full of all. Like it's like our word awesome. And what he does in this hymn is he starts working through this story where he's describing what it means to be a Christian. And he uses the, the parable. You remember the parable Jesus gave where he describes salvation as being, being like invited into a banquet? And we've been brought into this banquet hall where this marvelous feast is laid out for us and we have all the blessings of God to enjoy. And he begins describing salvation that way and, and describing our response to it. And here's how it goes. First verse says, how sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within its doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Here's what he's saying. This is what it means to be a Christian. We have been brought into this place and the greatest blessing is Christ is within the doors. The greatest blessing about this this uh, banquet of salvation we're at is that we now have the presence of Jesus. And this feast of love has been laid out where all the blessings of God are there for us to enjoy. That's how he starts. Then he begins describing our response to it. He says, second verse, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. Okay, so we're singing, we're celebrating this wonderful feast of salvation. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. This line gets me every time. He says, each of us cries with thankful tongue. Lord, why was I a guest? Third verse, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Do you you see the progression he's making? We've been brought into the presence of Christ at this banquet of salvation and we lift our voices to sing and the song, the, the thought that's on his mind is, how did I get here? How is it that I was brought into this when I see thousands of people who would rather starve than come in? And here's Watts' explanation. The next verse says, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Did you hear that language? How is it that we came to be in the feast? And Watts' answer is, it was the same love that spread this feast. It was the same love that provided salvation that then drew us into the feast. Do you see how that's... Paul saying here in Romans, here's what it means to be a Christian. You are loved and you are called. And then he gives the greeting that he puts in so many of his letters. And we'll finish up where he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when he gives this sort of benediction, this call of blessing, he's saying this to people who had, of course, already experienced God's grace. They had once been enemies. They now had peace with God. But Paul's praying for more grace and peace. It's a good reminder. Grace and peace are not one-time gifts in the Christian life. It's not a vaccine where you get your dose of grace and peace and then you're ready to move on. It is not a vaccine. It is our daily food. We live every day by His grace. We endure by grace. We serve by grace. We persevere by grace. And every day we desperately need His supernatural Peace. It is only by his peace that we can say, it is well with my soul, at the same time that we say, sorrows like sea billows roll. And Paul's making the point that this grace and peace are available only to those who put their trust in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who came of the seed of David and died in our place and was declared the powerful son of God through his resurrection from the grave. So here's the call of Paul's introduction. Put your trust in this Jesus. And Christian, sit in awe that the God of this universe would give you this sort of blessing. That you could say like the Romans that through Christ you are loved and you are called. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'll give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord yourself in your seat. And it could be that, that you've identified yourself as a Christian for years. But this isn't the Jesus you've trusted in. You've trusted more in a Jesus who does social work and gives moral lessons, but not the Jesus who is the King of heaven, who gave his life as an atoning death and rose from the dead. You've never, you've never trusted in this Jesus who is Savior and Lord, where you've turned from living for yourself as if you are bo a boss and God of your life and put your faith in him alone and what he's done for you. Let this be the time today that you call out to this Jesus to save you. And Christian, take a few minutes yourself and thank God for the wonderful truth that Paul lays out here, that we have been brought into this glorious banquet where we know the blessings of God and the presence of Jesus. It is not because we were smarter than everybody else, that we live more moral lives than everybody else. It's because God is unbelievably gracious. We know his love and we have experienced his divine call. Thank God for his grace.